You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. So it becomes so valuable to not only back up, but to be aware, even if you do, you still could be exposed for additional extortion. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, my conversation with Carolyn Crandall from Ativo Networks on why human-controlled ransomware, what they call ransomware 2.0, is particularly threatening with remote businesses. All right, Joe, uh, we got some good stories to share this week. I will kick things off for us. Uh, this is some interesting research from the folks over at Akamai, actually written by Orr Katz, who is uh, someone I've sp- spoken to a few times over on the Cyberwire. It's called Question Quiz, The Forgotten Scam. The folks at Akamai are, are revisiting some research that they did back in 2018, which uh, they were looking at a phishing toolkit, which uh, they called the three-question quiz. And this is something that probably most people are familiar with. I, I suspect anyone who's spent a good amount of time online has come across this. And it kind of goes like this. You'll you'll have, see some ad pop up or something, and it'll say, in the example they list here, it says, we are pleased to offer all our customers $100 credit, you know, in, in exchange for answering a few questions. And there'll be varying amounts of money. They'll offer you coupons, this, that, and the other thing. What's interesting is that they aren't really looking for particularly valuable information. The stuff they're looking for is usually your name, your email address, perhaps your phone number. They're not going after social security numbers. They're not going after credit card numbers. They're not going after any of those things that that are considered more valuable. But that's kind of what makes this campaign interesting, is that because they're not looking for those things, it sort of flies under the radar. It might not even be illegal. Well, that's an interesting point now, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. So the folks at Akamai, they dig into the campaign and they come up with some interesting uh, observations. They point out how the campaign's filtering works. For example, it's looking for people on mobile devices. If you're not Mm -hmm. on a mobile device, it kind of just sort of moves you along. It doesn't really uh, dig in and try to get information from you. But the other really interesting thing is that they discovered that, again, because this campaign focuses on information that is not considered highly valuable, it flies under the radar and goes undetected by many of the platforms that people count on to detect these sorts of things. Yeah. So it's interesting to me that despite what we've seen, I mean, we've tracked how, for example, ransomware campaigns are becoming more and more targeted. They're going after sometimes specific people. The folks who are doing the ransomware will spend time researching an organization or or once they get access to an organization, they'll spend time within that organization, within their systems, looking for uh, particular files, trying to establish how much ransom they can charge, you know, that that sort of thing. What kind of data can they exfiltrate and uh, hold hostage? But in this case, it seems as though these folks are just happy going after low-hanging fruit, really, easy stuff to get. 
If you think about it, Dave, the information they are gathering is kind of valuable. You know, if, if you have a list of known good email addresses, that might be of some value to somebody somewhere. And chances are the people that they're going to be selling that information to are, are unsavory people. Now, that could be legitimate businesses that we as thinking people find unsavory, like uh, <laughs> like mass emailing. I mean, right. I, I can't right. stand that. But like I said earlier, it's not illegal. I mean, I think maybe saying you're going to get $100 and then not giving them $100, that's illegal in right. a lot of countries, right? Sure. But just collecting people's personal information that they willingly give up for in a survey yeah, I don't know. There's a lot that can be done about this. No, and, and uh, you bring up a good point that I uh, neglected to mention, which is that you do not get a hundred dollars. Right? Is yeah. no, there is no, there, <laughs> there is, is no, no actual payoff here for answering these quiz questions. You, you, there is nothing. They, they basically pass you on to other things and then sort of dump you out into nowhere. That's how they do it. But then they, they have that information, and that information has some some kind of value. It may not be a lot, but if they it's cheap to set these things up. And if you can get a million people to respond, you've got a million email addresses. You could probably sell that for 50 bucks. Yeah. You could probably sell that 100 times for 50 bucks. And that's right. And I think it's very much a – it's kind of a set it and forget it sort of thing. Once you get one yep. of these campaigns running, it probably just chugs away. And if, you know, just – like we said, going after that low-hanging fruit, making right. uh, money uh, a few pennies at a time. But uh, when the numbers get big enough, I guess it's it's worth worth it for them to do it or we wouldn't see it. Yep. So uh, just another one of those things to keep an eye on. I, I would categorize this as sort of one of those nuisances. It's not like the information they're gathering is going to be used to really do anything bad to you. You'll be disappointed that you're not going to get the promised prize, and so it is a waste of time, but more a nuisance than anything. Just don't waste your time with these things. You know, Spread the word with your friends and family. These, these quizzes, there's nothing to them. You're, you're not going to get that free gift card. It's just not going to happen. 100% agree. All right. Well, that's my story this week. Joe, what do you have for us? So, Dave, I want to talk about the the Twitter hack that happened a little while ago, back on July 15th. Right after that happened, I said I wanted to talk about it, but I just didn't have enough information. But a couple of days ago, the Wall Street Journal put an article out about uh, this guy, Graham Ivan Clark, and, and his scam. So this Twitter hack ended with a big Bitcoin scam where somebody had co-opted the accounts of people like Barack Obama, Kanye West, Elon Musk. I think Jeff Bezos was also had his account hacked. There's a bunch they, of big names. Yeah, A bunch of real big names. And these were actually their accounts. These were not fake accounts set up to impersonate them. And they were doing a Bitcoin scam where they say, everybody that sends me any amount of Bitcoin, they'll get this much money back. You know, and then I, th- I saw one of the tweets, they said there's like a $5 million cap on this, right? So yeah, that yeah. kind of lends some legitimacy to it. Well, Graham Ivan Clark has been charged with this. He is 17 years old and they have charged him as an adult and mm-hmm. he faces up to 200 years in prison. Hmm. And he has pleaded not guilty to all the charges and is entitled to a presumption of innocence here. So everything I'm going to say is alleged. Right. Okay. But he gained access back in March when Twitter employees were told to work from home. And he gained access to Twitter by using social engineering techniques. He called one employee pretending to be uh, from IT. Unfortunately, the article doesn't go into the technical details, and we're not really a technical show. But I imagine that at that point in time, he probably installed some reverse shell or something to get control of that person's computer. And once he was inside that person's computer, he's essentially inside the network. He also did some SIM swapping with a phone company to get them to give – essentially what that does is it lets him 
have the phone of a person that used to have that phone. So, And mm-hmm. that's another social engineering attack. You have to call into a phone company and, and convince them that you're the owner of the phone, that you've lost your phone, and you have a new phone, and you want to port the number over to the new phone. I assume that this was used to bypass some two-factor authentication that he encountered. And then he fished some credentials for a cloud service that was used by Twitter as well. But one thing the the Wall Street Journal doesn't mention here is that in order to do all these things, he had to do some open source intelligence gathering. I'm sure of that. He had Mm. to do a lot of that. In order to do the SIM swapping, in order to find the person at Twitter and pretend to be from IT, he had to be able to call that person up and convince them that he was a coworker. And you're not doing that just by cold calling. No, he did some research on this. So once he gained access inside Twitter, oh, by the way, he did this back in March. He's been inside the network since March. And the authorities found a website where someone named Kirk was selling what they call OG usernames. Mm -hmm. You know what that is, Dave? I do. OG is original gangster. That's right. It's a username that is really short and easy to remember. Uh, Like at six is one of the Twitter handles that they they were talking about. At anxiety is one that they actually sold. That was an account that had been created and hadn't been used for 10 years. And he was selling these, posing as an employee of Twitter. On this forum, he was saying, I am an employee of Twitter. I'm inside and I can get you control of these accounts. And he was charging as much as 10 grand to get control of these accounts, Hmm. which I think is a lot of money. Then he decided to blow his cover with this Bitcoin scam and he got $120,000, which I don't think that was a good decision. I, I think he had a good business model here that he could have, yeah, that he could have kept going <laughs> quietly and made more than $100,000. I mean, yeah, you're running the risk that you're going to be detected uh, at some point in time. But a lot of this account takeover stuff flies under the radar because these accounts haven't been used in years and years and years. Chances are that the person who set that account up doesn't have the password for it anymore, can't remember it, and has just walked away from the account. In my opinion, it was silly to go ahead and do this Bitcoin scam because it's what got him caught and it, it destroyed his uh, his business model that he had earlier. Now, here's something interesting that's in the article that they mentioned in passing, but I'm going to read directly from the article. It says, in an unrelated investigation, authorities searched Mr. Clark's residence last August 2019, hmm. seizing his computers and freezing approximately 300 Bitcoin or million in current rates. Mr. Clark paid 100 Bitcoin to authorities to resolve the matter with no admission of wrongdoing. Now, Dave, I got a question for you. Mm. How does a 16-year-old kid have $3.4 million in Bitcoin? (laughs) That's a lot of lawn mowing. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. (laughs) It's a lot of lemonade sold on the corner, you know. (laughs) Exactly. It doesn't say this in the article, but I don't know why they would be investigating him for $3 million in in Bitcoin outside of maybe he didn't pay taxes on it. And Mm -hmm. that's what they asked for 100 Bitcoin to pay the taxes. That's the only thing I can think this investigation would be, would be an investigation from the Treasury Department. Because I can see a kid going, well, I'm 16. I got all this money. I didn't know I had to pay taxes on it. And the the government going, okay, fine. Just pay your taxes and we'll be done. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Still. Yeah, still. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, and of course, there's been lots of speculation as to how he could have gathered that much Bitcoin. And I've seen articles wondering if... He was uh, involved in some of the the underground markets in things like gaming and, um, you know, folks who go and find ways to uh, bilk people out of fractions of their bitcoins and, and so on and so forth. Again, you know, all, all alleged behavior and a lot of speculation. Right. Uh, 
hopefully, as this case makes its way through, we'll learn more about it and figure out exactly how he was able to pull some of these things off. What I'm, I'm really interested in your take on this is, you know, as you described his step-by-step process of getting into Twitter, none of these elements on their own strike me as being particularly sophisticated. I would say that SIM swapping is kind of sophisticated. You have to put a lot of effort into that. It's a sophisticated social engineering attack. And calling into that Twitter and pretending that you're from IT, you can't do that on your first try. I mean, it's not sophisticated. It's a social engineering that we've seen over and over and over again. You know, it's not innovative, I would say. It is a skill that you have to hone in practice. And the article makes mention of that. He was involved in uh, taking over his buddy's accounts on gaming platforms and has been doing that for a number of years. So that's probably where he cut his teeth on this is what mm-hmm. he's Well, uh, interesting uh, story of a, I suppose, a potentially troubled youth. And uh, uh, we'll see how the uh, wheels of justice turn with him. Yeah, it would be interesting. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing how this goes. Yeah, yeah. But the guy has $2 million at his disposal. I imagine he can hire some pretty good lawyers. <laughs> hire some good lawyers, right, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Maybe you can make yourself available at us as an expert witness, Joe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For I'm the low, low price. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, those are our stories. It is time to move on to our catch of the day. Joe, why don't you describe our catch of the day for us this week? Our catch of the day comes from Twitter user Joe Manna, and he's at Joe Manna, J-O-E-M-A-N-N-A. And it's a pretty standard phishing email. So, Dave, why don't you read this email? It's not funny, but it is interesting. Mm-hmm. All right, let's see. Uh, here we go. <clears throat> Domain account Google.com has exceeded the limit. Dear Bluehost.com client, domain account has exceeded the limit load available for the existing pay rate plan. Methods of load analysis and elimination. In order to prevent your account from being locked out, we recommend that you change the existing rate plan into a more powerful one or limit the server load by means of code optimization. Thank you. Bluehost support. Bluehost.com. This is not from Bluehost, of course. But (laughs) what is absolutely fascinating in this, and we've talked about this before, is the URL in the email is printed out here in plain text. You know, they didn't do a, an HTML thing where they say, click here, and the, the here is actually the link. They actually posted the entire URL in the email. And the URL reads my.bluehost.com dot some very long hash value dot 21st century leaders awards dot org slash account. And then it has everything leading you to the file. But the yeah. domain is interesting. So a lot of times when you get these kind of emails, you get emails with these long hashes in them or these long uh, values in them that are actually tracking information uh, right. for you. If you click on the link, it's unique identifier. So where does it take you from there? If you click on that link, what happens next? What happens next is you go to a phishing landing page that mm. is designed to impersonate Bluehost. And it's just looking for your login credentials, your username and your, your password. I see. So it looks just like Bluehost's actual login screen. Yeah, it probably is just copied from Bluehost's login screen. One of the problems with the web is that in order for you to have that information displayed on your web browser, I have to get all the code, uh, all the HTML, all the cascading style sheets, all the JavaScript. I I have to get that actually downloaded to my computer. So there's no way to run the World Wide Web without actually showing everybody what you're showing them, right? Right, right. So it's it's, it's right. impossible to stop people from impersonating your website, and it's very easy to impersonate a website. Right, right. It's a bug and a feature. Right, exactly. <laughs> I wouldn't even right. say it's a bug. It's just it's just the nature of the beast. It's, right. it's the way it is. It's a design element, yeah. Right. Yeah. 
All right. Well, that is our catch of the day.、Uh, again, thanks to、uh, user Joe Mana at Joe Mana for、uh, sharing that with us and with the world.、Uh, an interesting one and something to look out for. Joe, I recently、uh, had the pleasure of speaking with、uh, Carolyn Crandall.、Uh, she is from Ativo Networks, and our conversation centered on、uh, this notion of this next wave of ransomware, what they're referring to as ransomware 2.0,、uh, is so dangerous to businesses that have gone to remote working. Here's my conversation with Carolyn Crandall. The、uh, history or evolution of ransomware has been quite interesting to track, especially if you look at the window between about 2014 and, and 2020. And what you've seen is a massive shift from very small, you know, kind of hit a hit a, a computer, demand a small ransomware, and then stop your attack at that at that point. But what we've seen is that ransomware has gotten a lot more sophisticated. It's not targeted at the consumer as much anymore. It's more targeted at businesses. Where the attack methods are much more focused on being able to take the initial system, compromise that, but then expand throughout the network to be very strategic in going after the targets that you want for、um, either financial gain or data theft. And so, with that, you've seen an explosion of hundreds of different variants of ransomware that's out there, different levels of tactics and different levels of sophistication. And、uh, very aggressive and very targeted in many ways. And then on the flip side of the coin, you've seen ransomware arise as ransomware as a service, who, which makes it very inexpensive, even for a basic attacker or cyber criminal, to get into the business. So you've seen a lot of changes, but things materializing on both sides of the spectrum. Very entry level to get in, and very sophisticated level for the big ransomware payouts that we're starting to see today. So, if I'm someone who is tasked with protecting my organization against ransomware, what sorts of things should I have in place? Well, I think there's a belief that you can build a perimeter defense and keep the ransomware attackers out, and that's really difficult to do. If you think about the aggressiveness that you're seeing today, if you take the stats for face value or what they're worth,、um, attacks happening every 14 seconds. Things saying that 71% of companies that are targeted get infected, and ransomware is make it through multiple systems before they're they're able to get detected. And so you start to look at that, and you go, okay, well, what are my layers of defense that I have? I have my endpoint with an endpoint protection, maybe an EDR system, maybe I'm using a SIM and some network monitoring or other tools. But they have gaps. They're very good to do the things that they're designed to do. However, they are not great at detecting things like. Lateral movement, which is the spread from one system to the second, they're not good at detecting credential theft or forms of privilege escalation. And so, what I think organizations need to do in order to better protect themselves is to appreciate if they keep using the traditional tool sets, they will have gaps and holes. And so, they have to look for new technology innovation that is out there to be able to detect all these different forms of ransomware that are out there. Using these different tactics that their other tools are not designed to detect, and and a perfect example of that would be cyber deception, which is has grown quite a bit based upon the need to keep ransomware and other、uh, sophisticated types of attacks out of the network. So when we're talking about the state of the art when it comes to be able to defend yourself against things like ransomware, what sorts of things are we talking about? Is the software the systems looking for certain behaviors? How do they go about the business that they do? 
Well, if you think about the a typical attack will start, they'll compromise the initial endpoint. And that can happen in a wide variety of ways, you know, phishing probably being the most uh, common, but there's there's lots of other tactics. So let's assume that one of those various types of tactics, they are going to get into the system. And the attacker, in order to get the payout that they want, are going to use uh, APT-styled methods to move forward. And so that's going to be stealing credentials. Um, they're going to do active directory reconnaissance to kind of get the GPS and the lay of the land. Um, they're going to look for network shares to be able to find them and encrypt them. They're going to look for default and dictionary passwords, other misconfigurations. Um, and then they'll look for other things in their network reconnaissance to find misconfigurations and be able to exploit known vulnerabilities of the systems that are out there. So they're, they're going to look for ways to advance their attack. And there's some really clever things that are out there today that will derail these, deception being part of it. And others is these new forms of being able to hide and deny access to things like file shares or Active Directory. And those, I think, are some of the, the more interesting innovations that are out there because if you think about what a ransomware attacker has to do is, is they have to get access to those files, folders, drives, the map shares, maybe the cloud shares. But what if they can't find them? What if you hide them from being visible to the attacker and instead only give them a fake drive. They believe it's real. It'll look and move like a real drive would look as they do their command line to find these things. But they'll get back the fake information. And when they try to use that information, it'll lead them back into a decoy where now the defender can actually pick up some telemetry. Well, who's attacking me? How are they attacking me? What are their TTPs and IOCs? And so this innovation is quite effective because it, it actually moves up from the typical detecting an attack when the exploit happens to being able to do it so early on, you're doing it at the point of attacker observation, and it becomes a very effective preventative uh, tool. And the cool thing is, is you can do this not only for files and, and shares that are out there today, but you can also do this for Active Directory. And a lot of the red team testing that we do as a proxy for attackers today, people want to go straight to Active Directory, right? Because you can get a lot of valuable information very quickly. And it's not as well protected as many organizations would like it to be. And so this is another way of hiding the real things, tricking the attacker's tools, feeding them back fake information, and again, steering their path away from the production pieces and into a deception environment. So these are some of the things that I like for derailing these uh, types of ransomware or other attacks that are out there today. Is it still good advice to make sure that you have up-to-date, tested, uh, off-site backups? Absolutely. I would, and I would recommend testing them. That's a key, it's a key word in there too. So many people think that they have, you know, hey, I'm backing up. I have a great backup. I'll just restore. But there's two things I'd encourage people to think about is, is one, test them at least monthly. I mean, more often would be better, but at least test your backups monthly to make sure that you can actually restore them. And then the second thing is, is to be aware of what's uh, being termed as double extortion. And that is that not only will they exfiltrate your data, right? So at least 10%, they're taking the data out and not just encrypting your drives. So they could give you back your encryption key. But the downside is, is they still have your data. And in these cases, they could do further um, extortion with that data. They could extort your customers if you're carrying personal or confidential information. But you can't assume that you're done even in just getting your encryption back. So it becomes so valuable to not only back up, but to be aware even if you do, you still could be exposed for additional extortion. So you really want to get ahead of the whole thing and prevent the attacker from being successful in the first place. I would encourage people to, again, escalate this given the destructiveness of the attack. 
not rely on backups, not rely on insurance, but instead take a look at some of the new innovation that's out there for preventative defenses. And also to study things like the MITRE attack framework and really understand how an attacker attacks and then map your tools to that framework to see where your gaps and holes are so that you can find the technologies you need to add into your security stack and prevent that attacker from being able to be successful. All right, Joe, what do you think? Uh, that was a good interview, Dave. I like I like what Carolyn had to say. Ransomware has gotten more sophisticated. It did start you know, attacking individuals and then uh, moving on to corporations. One of the things that Carolyn said that's very important is that if you don't test your backups, then you really don't have backups. Mm. We always say backup your data to protect you against a ransomware attack. But part of that process has to be testing the restoration of that data on a regular basis. Yeah, it's also, you know, I was talking to somebody just this week that people often neglect to consider how restoring systems at scale, how much time that takes. You know, if you've got hundreds of machines or thousands of machines that all need to be restored, that can take a lot of time. And that time is time you might not have. Right. Absolutely. That is a huge issue. So there there are ways you can mitigate that. You can actually buy insurance that allows you to just hire masses of people for a short period of time in, in the event of a cyber attack. But yeah, you're right. If you don't stop these things early... Uh, and you have all of your computers on your network are now essentially locked and the operating system has been destroyed. Even if you do have good backups, you're still hosed. <laughs> you still have right. uh, You still have a lot of problems that you're going to have to overcome. All right. Well, uh, again, our thanks to Carolyn Crandall from Ativo Networks for joining us. We do appreciate her taking the time. And that is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Of course, we want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thank you.